just a heads up for our listeners, this episode contains descriptions of fairly graphic sexual violence. I didn't think there would be a grade above what I was experiencing with Robbie as we gripped hands in the courtroom. Trump's entire defense was, was based not only on Eugene being a liar, but pretty much on every other person who testified in that courtroom also being a liar. Robbie has figured it out. You figured out legal recourse to Donald Trump's lies. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the rule of law. I am Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover those things for Slate. Last week in New York, a unanimous jury found Donald Trump liable for $5 million for battery, sexual abuse, and defamation. I didn't cover the trial on a daily basis because Robbie Kaplan, the lead lawyer for Eugene Carroll, who brought that case is a friend. She's also a chapter in my recent book. And I should note that an interview that Virginia Heffernan and I did with E. Jean long before the trial actually became evidence as part of the trial. So it seemed best to kind of stand back. But now that the proceedings are over, I am delighted to welcome both Robbie Kaplan and E. Jean Carroll onto the show to talk about what it all meant and what comes next. Later on in this show, Slate Plus listeners are going to get to hear from Mark Joseph Stern about oral arguments at the Fifth Circuit in the medication abortion case, about what's happening in North Carolina in the context of abortion, and about a decision that had to do with an Andy Warhol something-something that came down from the court this week. Slate Plus members get access to bonus segments like my chat with Mark, and they get ad-free versions of all of Slate's podcasts, and they never hit a paywall on Slate.com. What's more, Slate Plus members support all of the journalism that we do here on the show and at the magazine in general, and we are always ever so grateful for that. If you would like to show your support and become a member, go to Slate.com slash Amicus Plus for details. That's Slate.com slash Amicus Plus. And Slate Plus members can access a special discount on tickets for our very exciting live event that's coming up this coming Wednesday, May 24th in Washington, D.C. at 6 and I. Mark Stern and I will be live in D.C. along with Ellie Mistal and Jay Willis to talk about the looming and very consequential batch of Supreme Court decisions headed our way but also to have a very honest conversation about how we as journalists ought to be covering a court that is currently writing roughshod over precedent, ethics, and public opinion. For those who'd like to go all out on this event, there will be a happy hour before where you can meet me and Mark and some of our guests and colleagues. Get more information at slate.com slash live. And we will also link to it in our show notes. And we would love to see you there. And for Slate Plus members, you can get that special discount on tickets by signing into Slate and visiting your account. You'll find the discount code there. Neither of my guests here today needs any introduction at all. 
E. Jean Carroll is the storied journalist and advice columnist who successfully sued Donald J. Trump in federal court last week for defamation and sexual abuse for an incident that took place at Bergdorf Goodman in which he assaulted her in a change room and then defamed her when she wrote about it in the book. Robbie Kaplan, her lawyer, argued successfully on behalf of Edie Windsor at the U.S. Supreme Court, ending the Defense of Marriage Act. Thus opening the door to marriage equality, she and Karen Dunn successfully sued the Nazis and white supremacists who invaded Charlottesville in 2017. And she was Eugene's lawyer through this trial with her amazing team. And I'm just going to say, in the interest of disclosure, I want to note, A, that we are friends, which is why I have not been covering this trial. And B, I'm totally fine with that. First of all, both of you, ah, welcome. I'm so delighted to have you on the show. And the whole time the trial was going on, all I could think about was like, this is something I want to ask them if I get them on the show. So I have many thoughts. Welcome. I can't wait to hear what you've been thinking, Daya. Eugene, let's start with you. You have been saying that the vindication was just, this was the greatest day of your life. You've said a bunch of times, I love this, you just wanted to be in court. You just wanted to tell your story. Mm. A week later, has the shine come off that, including like some of the dumb stuff that happened on the CNN town hall? Or do you just see this as an unalloyed, all of your dreams came true, this is all you ever wanted? I tell you, Dahlia, not only has the shine just not gone away, it's been burnished. It truly is shining brighter because we can feel and we can see and we can read people writing to us from all over the country, and they are buoying us up, up, up. So the sparkle is now, it's almost dazzling. So the happiness, I didn't think there would be a grade above what I was experiencing with Robbie as we gripped hands in the courtroom. I didn't think it could get bigger, but now it's calmer. And so I can enjoy it more. You have to almost calm down to enjoy true happiness. As Jane Austen said, after Mr. Darcy proposed to her, she said she rather knew she was happy than she felt it because you have to calm down. That's where I am right now. Robbie, now I'm going to turn to you and yeah, ask. How am I supposed to follow up? On well, I, I'm just going to ask you a lawyerly question because there's no, you. you cannot burnish the burnishment. But <laughs> I, I do want to ask you because I think probably a lot of folks who are listening to this show can't quite sort in their heads Carol 1, Carol 2. There's two different lawsuits. One is still pending. Would you just mind setting the table for listeners? What is it that got decided? What is still pending? How's that one going to go? And then we can talk about Carol 3, 4, 5, and 7 if you want to. (laughs) So E. Jean, uh, the excerpt from her book was published in New York Magazine in June 2017. The minute that came out, Trump went on a three-day, we call it a defamation spree or a defamation rampage, where he said increasingly vicious, vitriolic things about Eugene over the course of three days. And the original case, what we call Carol One that we brought, we brought that fall, as I recall, about those defamatory statements. And I'll, I'll come back to where that case is. The second case, which we affectionately and lovingly refer to as Carol Two. Uh, We did not file until last year based on two things. One, New York passed a law called the Adult Survivors Act that Eugene helped to pass. It's incredible to have a litigant actually pass a law and then take advantage of it, um, which gave her the right to bring a civil claim for battery based on the assault that had happened in 1996. 
And two, in the course of litigation of Carol one, uh, there was a news story one day. I don't, I can't remember what prompted. I think he lost a decision in, before Judge Kaplan in Carol one, and he got angry about it, and he put up a true social post in October 2022 that repeated again the same defamations from 2019. So Carol two, the case that was just tried and went to verdict, was the battery for the original underlying sexual assault and the 2022 defamation. That case is done, $5 million to E. Jean. Carol 1 is still pending. Carol 1 has, has gone through a, how should I put it, a Dickensian <laughs> uh, journey Perfect. through the court system. We basically lost about a year and a half where the Second Circuit said they wanted the opinion of the D.C. Court of Appeals on the question of whether when Trump made those defamatory statements, he was acting as president or he was doing so in his personal capacity. And that issue, which is relevant under a federal statute called the Westfall Act, that is now back before Judge Kaplan. The same D- judge. Same judge. The D.C. Court of Appeals has basically said that Judge Kaplan's interpretation of the law when he originally decided the issue was correct, but he needs to decide it again, applying some facts. And that still is yet to be decided before Judge Kaplan. We're gonna, there's going to be some news on that soon because we're going to set a table for Judge Kaplan uh, recommending how he should proceed in that case. Eugene, one of the lessons that I took from the trial, I think this is the only piece I wrote about the trial, was that your jury, six men, three women, nary a Manhattan avocado toast eater among them. Although the former president, I think, likes to say that they were all like built of avocado toast. Um, (laughs) But they had no trouble believing a whole bunch of things that you were very, very coherently and aggressively saying about assault victims, like they don't always scream. Yeah. They don't hot foot it straight to the police station. No. They sometimes follow men into changing rooms. Right. And that doesn't make them hoarse. In so many ways, <laughs> I felt like your testimony upended decades, if not centuries, right. of ideas about how the storytelling has to go in a trial so right. that you can construct a good victim. Right, right. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about that because I, I, I know, you know, when Virginia Heffernan and I talked to you right after the book came out and the excerpt was printed, and you were really very uncomfortable saying it was rape, it was, you know, mm. I'm not a victim. Like, you pushed hard on that in that conversation. And you've carried that kind of all the way through. You just insisted that whatever that box was, you would not live in it. And that seemed to have gone all the way through trial, and the jury seemed okay with that. They heard me, which to me was astonishing, because I didn't quite understand the process. And the process where you sit in a chair— a male peacock from the 17th century comes and questions you for a day and a half. Wait, is that Michael Ferrara or Joe Tacopina? That's uh, <laughs> Mr. Tacopina. <laughs> Michael Ferrara is, uh, let's just say he is the ultimate good egg. So I just said what happened. That's what, you know, I didn't sugarcoat anything. I just used it in regular, as we say, girl language. I answered Mike's and, and uh, Mr. Takapino's questions, uh, you know, with the facts as I understood it. I just said what happened, and um, that's what came across. I didn't—I'm <laughs> still pretty amazed that the process worked. It just worked brilliantly. 
It, it worked brilliantly. And I think for so many decades, having to answer, why didn't you cry? Why didn't you scream? Mm. Uh, to not have to answer them. In fact, to sort of suggest that how dare you ask that and to prevail, like must have felt like the ground shifting. Yeah. <sighs> See, I was born before uh, in the middle of World War II, so those questions didn't rattle me. I'm used to them. Uh, the younger, like you, the young women, you're much younger, so of course you were, you were hackles were up, I'm sure. Um, but to me, they, you always ask, well, what were you wearing? How short was the skirt? Were you flirting? Why didn't you scream? What? You didn't fight? What's the matter with you? What the hell are you going in a change? What the hell is the matter with you? You know, it's all about what the woman did wrong. Never, or rarely, ever, about what the man did wrong. So we uh, maybe turned it right side up for those two and a half weeks. Well, let's hope that uh, other people follow our example. Robbie, one of the things I, I, I this is going to sound like a weird digression, but I have this Lyle Lovett theory of music, which is that the reason I love Lyle Lovett is he surrounds himself with the greatest musicians and lets them shine. And it was so clear to me that Sean was doing what Sean had to do. Mike was doing what Mike. You really deployed your mm. team in a way that certainly you could have done the whole trial yourself, I'm sure. But you kind of made it so that everyone was cast in exactly the role they needed to be in, both for the jury and I think for Judge Kaplan. And interestingly, that made Joe Tacopina seem even more ghoulish because there was only this kind of one note peacocking in response to like a really, I think, subtle, complicated, you know, to have a man do the direct. So I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about was that just like a masterstroke on your part or were you just super lucky that the right people fell into the right place to sort of perform the right roles at the right times? So I'd like to say it was all completely random, but that, w that wouldn't be fair to say. We certainly, our team as a whole, thought about who should do what. Um, I think it was very important, honestly, and, and maybe this is giving in to stereotypes, but, you know, a trial is a trial, and you want to win the trial. So we thought having a mic put on not only E. Jean, but the two other victims was very, very important to do here, and I think the jury saw that. We would wanted a guy on the case. Sean Crowley and I have been doing the case kind of ourselves for a long time, and we knew we needed a guy, so it wasn't just a completely gender thing. And I, I like to say that the firm that we started, that I started, Kaplan Hecker, that's the way we roll. The only way to do a trial is to do it as a team mm. um, with teamwork. And we talked and kind of planned who would do what and how we would do it. And we all actually had opinions about how what everyone else was doing. So it was really a team effort. Even with the preparation of Eugene, we all did it together. Also, Daya, you always say that Robbie thinks, what, five steps ahead. And then she does this wild geometry in her head, moving the pieces that nobody else can see where the moves are going. And she's so far ahead. This sounds strange to say, but she's so far ahead that those two and a half weeks went very smoothly. Very, she foresaw, and it was uh, taken care of before the trial started. It was very smooth because she had, it's a difficult case. 
we were up against the former president. Did you notice how smooth it was, Dario? I noticed that, you know, I've watched Robbie trials enough to know that things are not accidents. Like, right. I know, because right. often I get the 10.30 p.m. phone call <laughs> saying, just spitballing here, but I'm, you know, I, I know that this nothing is an accident. I also noticed something that you're hilarious, Eugene. Like, you would just say funny stuff. And I wonder if that helped diffuse things too because there there was like a bean salad thing that you yeah. said that I think the jury was like laugh like I, I'm assuming that's just you. I mean, no, I no, know no. you well enough to know that you say like you have no filters and that also no in the best way <laughs> And we tried to work on her having a couple oh, of I know. Goodness. You just oh. looked at Robbie. I wish <laughs> listeners could see the faces where Eugene was like, am I in trouble? And Robbie's like, you're not in trouble. But also you have no filters. But like you are just objectively, you kind of um, pivot to humor in a way that I think yeah. even talking about things that are hard. Oh, yeah. And I think it's probably a little bit, again, you know, you're, that was a defense mechanism. That's how you worked your way through like gonzo journalism. Right. But I think it it was not um, lost on the jury that somehow you were talking about, like, horrific pain and trauma and also able to be kind of three-dimensional and quite laugh-out-loud funny. It's the long tradition of women over thousands and thousands of years. If we do not laugh at men and the horrible things they do, we would all be crying. Life would be horrible. So uh, that's that's the—and by the way— Robbie, Mike Ferrara, Sean Crowley, and Matt Craig. Let E. Jean be E. Jean, but a buttoned up (laughs) E. Jean, let me tell you. (laughs) I don't suppose you're going to tell us. At least one button that was unbuttoned. (laughs) You're not going to tell us one thing that you did that Robbie, like, took you out back and yelled at you next to the dumpster? No, she never did nothing but give me Not at the trial, honestly. I I thought you were incredibly charming. I thought your humor, as you just said, really worked. I think you're talking back to Joe when he was, you know, asking about the difference between rummaging around your vagina and inserting a finger in your vagina was really effective. And I thought the jury saw the real you and they were charmed by you, as most people are. Um, during the prep sessions, there might have been, but been a couple things that she said that we were like, maybe oh, you don't my need to God, volunteer pain. all that information. I caused them such pain. Uh, uh, Michael actually gripped his head at one time and ran his fingers through his hair like this. So it was, it was not easy for them. We're going to pause now to hear from our great sponsors. Let's get back to my conversation with Roberta Kaplan and E. Jean Carroll. I have to ask you, Eugene, do you know a ton about the law now? Like, do you feel like you oh, went I'm to law school? I'm fascinated by the law. Yeah? I am fascinated. It's so dramatic. It's so much better than movies and television and series. It's, I mean, it was the most dramatic thing. And nobody knew what that jury was going to do. Nobody. Was the trial itself, Eugene, like the courtroom, the day-to-day? Yes. Was it what you expected? And if it no. wasn't, how was it different? I didn't expect it had much more grandeur, and Judge Kaplan was, you know, this tall, monumental man with this huge mane of gray hair, and he he got off one-liners. Everybody liked him. The people in the courtroom adored him. He was so respectful of the jury. It was like a big, big pageant with drama underneath, 
because uh, there was a lot writing on it, about a former president and the hideous things he did. So now we unfortunately have to ask the question that I hate, which is within 24 hours of this victory, and Donald Trump was defaming again in real time with substantially the same claims, seemingly unchecked. And I think I want to start with you, Robbie, and just say, did you expect that to happen? I mean, did you say to yourself a week ago, huh? It's done. He shall never defame us again. Or were you just set the timer because he's going to blow? I knew he would continue to deny it. I think it's just pure coincidence that the jury came back so quickly. And it was the day before the CNN town hall. Um, But once the jury came back and the CNN town hall was on, we knew they were going to ask about it. And we knew he wasn't going to say, "Okay, now I admit. I admit it. I'm wrong. I'm so sorry, Eugene. I did that to you. We knew that wasn't going to happen. I think I was a little stunned, a little, it's hard Mm. to stun me with Donald Trump now, but a little stunned that he used exactly the same language. It was, he basically repeated the defamation in ways that make it very easy for us to basically not have to prove a case on the merits because we're going to get what's called collateral estoppel or issue preclusion. Um, So that wasn't maybe the, the wisest thing for him to do. Like he should have had it like thesaurus and defamed come up with different words. words. Exactly. But it didn't surprise me at all that he did it. I'm watching to see if he keeps doing it, though, and I, I don't know. I mean, I think the the threat of more and more money may ultimately tone down what he says at some point. And, Eugene, you described that second round at the town hall as just assaultive again, and not just assaultive of you, well, but of all of the women who had taken that trial to mean that maybe he will stop talking about women this way. And... You just mentioned, you know, you opened by saying you've had so much email from people who are like, let me tell you my story. Yeah, and let me. Yeah. And I wonder how we answer the question of how this legal system makes him stop if every time he loses, he just does it more. And especially in light of what you just said about the pageantry and the grandeur and the sort of seriousness of this verdict, what do you do with a defendant who just doesn't care? Robbie has figured it out. Oh, good. Robbie oh, really? has figured That's it nice out. That's nice to know. Tell me what I figured out. Breaking news. Robbie's You're holding it. him. You figured out legal recourse to Donald Trump's lies. So That's what you do. We've had a lot of, I've talked to a lot of prominent First Amendment lawyers who say that this is probably the best factual scenario ever for a gag order, a post-defamation verdict gag order that would basically ask the Judge Kaplan or someone else oh. to prevent him from saying that. The problem with that is there's all kinds of issues. It would be drag on. Just the Westfall Act issue has dragged on for years. That would drag on for even longer years. I'm not sure it's worth the effort, but but we are certainly have a lot of other options on the table, all of which we are seriously considering. Does the fact that this means absolutely nothing to him, this loss, somehow diminish it for you? It does mean something to him. Listen, you know Robbie Kaplan better than almost anybody, and you know she's got plans. He will rue the day. Rue it. And I wish there were a stronger word than rue, but that's what he's going to do. I also think, like, he understands money. One thing Donald Trump understands is money. And $5 million for Donald Trump is not nothing. And there's really no viable appellate argument in Carroll 2. So he's going to pay that $5 million with interest sooner than he thinks he's going to have to pay it. And, And he will feel that. Wait a minute. He pays interest? 
He'll have to pay interest from the time of the judgment. Yeah. Okay. Good. Live and learn. At 9%, I think. At 9%. I think it's 9% off the chain. No kidding. Yeah. Good. And this isn't like. Good interest rate. This isn't sofa cushion change, like even for Donald Trump. Like this, this hurts. I mean, this is a guy who does not like to pay anything for anything. So this is, this (laughs) is I'm not even sure he's got $5 million in liquidity. He may have to sell something to pay you the $5 million. I want you to talk for a minute, Robbie, because I think after the trial, there was a big initial, like, damn it, he lost on the rape, as though that was a really consequential loss or that that somehow minimized the extent of the victory. And, you know, my instinct that day was like, this is a huge win, period, mm-hmm. end of story. The rape was kind of swinging for the fences. But I'd love for you to just unpack how the two of you thought about that, because I confess, I wondered if you would experience this as a blow. So we were we did not. I mean, Eugene, you should speak for yourself. But I didn't. I saw we saw it as a complete victory. Mm. You know, there's a lot of possible reasons for why the jury came out the way they did. I think the number one reason is that New York's law <laughs> for sexual crimes is, shall we say, could use a good update. <laughs> it's really outdated. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The one difference I think that the jury probably relied on is the difference both in timing and in body parts. And Mm -hmm. and I'm going to embarrass myself. But it was very clear with sexual abuse, which is what they found, that certain body parts for sure he used in an offensive way with E. Jean Carroll. Rape requires, again, we're going to have to say it, rape requires a penis. And while E. Jean certainly testified that he did insert his penis, she also freely had to acknowledge that she couldn't see anything because he was pressed against her and her head was above, that she doesn't think he ejaculated. And that pretty quickly, as I recall, Eugene, after you think that happened, you felt that happened, you were able to push him off you. Mm -hmm. So I think that explains the jury's verdict here. Mm -hmm. With respect to, again, I hate to do this for your listeners, with respect to his fingers, there was no question that that happened, and you described repeatedly how incredibly painful it was and how you can still remember the sensation Mm. of his fingers inside you. Uh, And that clearly is what led to the sexual abuse verdict. With respect to rape, again, it's got to be the penis. You say, and I'm sure it was, it did happen, Mm. that you felt it, Mm. but the evidence wasn't quite as solid as it was for sexual abuse. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's how I see it. And I guess it was sufficiently ambiguous as you presented it that your sense that maybe a civil jury in a a trial that was ultimately a defamation trial and a sexual Mm. abuse trial, this wasn't a split verdict. This wasn't them doing something tricky. It was just going to be very hard to establish that the former president had perpetrated a rape. Two other issues. One, E. Jean herself admits and testified on the stand that she's avoided the word rape. Yeah. yeah, for right. years and years and years. So Including that, with me in Virginia. Right. Right. So that was an issue. Yeah, yeah. And then two, everyone has to remember what Trump's position is. Trump's not saying, and we pointed this out to the jury multiple times, his argument was not that, yeah, maybe I did run yeah. into her, maybe right. she did help me find a gift, That's right. and maybe we did go into the changing room, but I thought she wanted it. I thought she consented. That was never his defense. His defense all along has been it never happened. She's a whack job. She's a con man or a con woman, it's a hoax, it never happened. And on that issue, the jury was very clear. It mm. happened. Something mm. happened very mm. bad at Burdorf Goodman that day in, in the spring of 1996. 
the power of having two other witnesses who were mm. able to describe essentially this mm. pattern and practice of just kind of grab handsing and assaulting women without their consent. It was amazingly powerful testimony. But, Eugene, I wondered what you felt as you were listening to that. I mean, I, I, I'm wondering if it sort of felt re-traumatizing oh, or there was solidarity. I, I and- was so proud to hear to hear them tell their stories, particularly when Natasha walked in, sat down, uh, got seated, had her water, and then she looked out at that courtroom. And within 45 seconds or a minute, she welled up and realized where she was, and she was being heard. Um, and just like he, you. Just yeah, like you. It's just, it, it was an amazing experience because he denigrated her. I don't think so. You know, look at her. I don't think so. And this Natasha Stoinoff, who was hot, let me tell you, she is a great-looking, well-set-up woman. So Natasha, it was great. She flew in. She did her thing. And then we have Jessica Leeds, who came in with a cane. You know, she's got a hip or a knee, I don't remember. She flew in. She said her story. And you don't shake somebody like Jessica Leeds. She's, what, 81, 82? That's a businesswoman. And she told what happened. And it it was a great moment. It was a great moment for both these women and for me and for many, many survivors across the country to read what these women had to say. Now that Eugene has essentially cast this as a Netflix series, <laughs> I feel that I have to turn to you, Robbie, to ask yeah, you to— I'm definitely an expert on Netflix series. Um, <laughs> you're just going to have to narrate that deposition. Oh, uh, totally. Because for sure, if you were— doing the film of this, you sitting in Mar-a-Lago, taking Donald Trump's deposition, pulling out a photo, <laughs> having him identify Eugene as his soon-to-be wife, Marla Maples. I Will you just please tell us how that felt? Because I think in the video, you appear to be quite... We just talked about how you had to button down Eugene. Yeah. I think on yeah. the inside, you were lying on your back, kicking your I legs and, and saying, like, this is the single greatest day of my life. I wanted to strip and do the hustle or something, for sure. <laughs> and yet your face, you were just like, huh, who's that again? Yeah, exactly. I said, what did you just say? Um, look, it, it, that's how it came about. It was I wasn't trying to trick him. I'm not saying I've never tried to trick someone in deposition, but I wasn't trying to do that here. He mentioned the photo. And I said, okay, I think we have a copy of that photo. And I asked someone to give it to me, and I, and, and I put it in front of him. And he started pointing to it immediately and said, that's Marla. Right. And I said, I think I said something like, what did you just say? And he said, yeah, that's Marla. Um, and then Alina Haba, his attorney, his attorney, realized what he'd done and started saying, no, 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 that's E.G. And people said, why did you object then? And I said, he'd already done it. It really didn't matter <laughs> so much to me. And I, that kind of calmness, again, you guys both know me well. I'm not known for my calmness. <laughs> but I stayed, like, I was super cool, like a cucumber, that whole deposition. And I think it's just because I knew that we were getting so much good evidence. Um, when he wasn't misidentifying Eugene, he was, he was insulting me. I mean, he insulted <laughs> me the whole day. He called me a disgrace, a political operative. I wasn't his type. And each time he did it, I would just kind of let him go on. And then I would say, are you done yet? Because I have another question, 
which would only make him crazier. And just to be clear, the thing established the minute he points to Eugene and says, this is my second wife, Marla Maples, A, he's been saying that Eugene is not his type. Correct. I guess she and kind he did of was. Later say that all his, I asked him later, I said, I take it all your wives are your type. And he said, oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, she got that covered. But it both went to disprove the, the whole thing he had been using to discredit you, but also like in a just a sort of existential way, like women are all the same, damn. Oh. We're all just You're the just same. You were just blondes with, with cute, similar cute blonde hairdos, right? There you go. Who looked very similar to him. That's That's absolutely right. One thing about the two other women I wanted to mention is so in the middle of the trial, I took out – I'm very bad at graphics. But I took out a piece of paper and I drew a chart of E. Jean, Natasha, and Jessica. And it, it just turns out that it's perfect in terms of timing. Jessica oh. is 1980. Yeah. E. Jean is 1996. And then Natasha is 2005. Like E. Jean's right. right in the middle. Right. And for all three of them, it's exactly – the same pattern. This is a chart we actually showed to the jury in my closing. Each one of them, they're in kind of a semi-public place. Right. Right? Um, for Jessica, was on a plane, in the first-class section of a plane. Eugene, Bergdorf Goodman, Natasha Maralago. Each time he's kind of having chit-chat, kind of mm. friendly conversations with both of them. Each time he kind of leads them to a more private place, although with Jessica was kind of in, a, in, a, in the plane itself. And then he just, out of the blue suddenly for all three of them just pounces and the conduct was so similar which each of those three stories i think that the jury i think that was very very compelling testimony for the jury i mean they just saw the pattern and then on top of that they had him saying the pattern on the access hollywood tape exactly beautifully orchestrated robbie let's take a short break Hey, Amicus listeners, I wanted to give you a heads up about an exciting upcoming live event that we're doing on Wednesday, May 24th. Mark Joseph Stern and I will be live in D.C. to talk about the end of the court term and how we should be covering it as journalists. We're going to be joined there by Ellie Mistal and Jay Willis. And we're going to talk through all the drama and the ethics scandals and the cases happening at the high court and how we as journalists need to approach the end of the term. For those who would like to go all out on this event, there will be a happy hour before where you can meet me and Mark and many of our colleagues, and you can get more information at slate.com slash live. We would love to see you there. And Slate Plus members get a special discount on their tickets. You can find member event discount codes by signing into Slate and visiting your account. More now with Robbie Kaplan and E. Jean Carroll. Can you both talk for a minute about the defamation piece of this? Because as you say, Eugene, that I, I was really hung up on the fact that we were so obsessed with the sexual abuse that we were not actually reckoning with the fact that the jury just thought he was a liar. And he was not just a liar, but he defamed you under the highest standard, you know, the Sullivan standard, which is the highest standard in the world. And you know, this is particularly for listeners of this show, this whole truth problem is a thing oh. we spend our lives trying to get our hands around in the Trump era. And I just wanted to give each of you a chance to reflect on what that other hugely consequential win on the defamation claim signals, because I think it's not to say that the sexual assault, the sexual abuse uh, finding isn't incredibly gratifying for all the reasons we've talked about. But the fact that this guy uses his mouth to destroy people 
and that that got checked seems very consequential to me. Very. Very. We need to make him shut the hell up. That's what we need to do, and this was the first step. And Robbie has other steps in mind, which I can't talk to you about right now. But that was well done, Eugene. Thank you. <laughs> no waiver of privilege so far. <laughs> no, it was, you, you really haven't lived until you hear the President of the United States say you're getting paid to tell this story, that you're a, an operative of the Democratic Party, that you're coming forward to sell a book, that the book belongs in the fiction section. It was just one hideous thing on top of another. It was like, it was just hateful. He was out to really destroy me. Yeah, and and erase you in a way that I oh, think, you know. He wasn't there. That's just erasing. Yeah, erasing just, every piece of you and every attempt to kind of claw your way back. And uh, again, it goes back to being confused about two women in a photo. Your wallpaper right. and his construction. And so I want Robbie to answer the defamation question, but there's a way in which you're kind of a performance artist, and you're better at it than he is in some ways, because you're just so you, you're not predictable, you didn't fit into any box that any juror could have established about what a woman is, what a woman of your age is, what a woman who was a journalist, you know, kind of coming up at a time where there were no... You defied every category. And in some sense, what occurred to me is not just that you're just really a good performer, but you're so much better at it than he is. No, Daya, he's way better at it. He's the best at it we've ever seen in this country. That's what's so terrifying. He is so much. He's so good at it. He's so good at it. Uh, he's so good at it that, what, 78% of Republicans uh, believe that the uh, election uh, was possibly stolen. I mean, that's how good he is at it. So he's way better. I don't know what the the it is, and maybe we're just, you know, counting angels on the head of a pen. But I think the it for me is that you are original. Oh. And he is a cartoon. And he gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And you... No, Dahlia, he gets bigger and bigger. Don't fool yourself. He has a very evil and dangerous mind. Don't for a minute think that I'm bigger than Trump. Trump is huge. He's huge. That's what's so terrifying. He's huge. For a moment, for a moment. Maybe my little tiny image, you know, was blown up a minute, but I don't fool myself. I am an amoeba. I am a speck of dust compared to the hugeness of Donald Trump. But Robbie Kaplan. <laughs> oh, God. Robbie Kaplan. Not again. No, I don't. I'm not even going to say Rob, Robbie Kaplan's got a chisel and a hammer, and she is chipping away at that foundation, which is, by the way, completely made up. The, the, you know, he's made out of, I don't know, cellophane. I don't know what he's made out yeah. of. But uh, I think it took a you to take down a him. I've thought about this a lot. Isn't the main difference the difference between a courtroom and the rules that apply in court oh. and a CNN town hall, right? So in this case, Trump's entire defense was, was based not only on Eugene being a liar, 
but pretty much on every other person who testified in that courtroom also being a liar. So it was not only Jessica um, and Natasha, Jessica Lee's and Natasha Stoinoff. It was Lisa Bernbach and Carol Martin. It was the those ex- were the two com- com- right. contemporaneous friends. friends. Yeah. Okay, it was the expert who testified, who'd examined Eugene for 20 hours and testified about the impact this had on her. And it was two Bergdorf employees who you've never met. I mean, the first time you'd ever seen them was in the courtroom, who testified that her account of the store at that time was consistent with the way the store actually was at that time. And so it was basically 11 to 1. And the jury, in order to buy his argument, had to buy that they were all lying. And that was very hard for any jury to buy. And then on top of that, you have a guy who lies all the time. I think in a lot of ways in our case, the smaller lies, at least in my mind, were in some ways more important than the bigger lies. I'll give you an example. When he looked at that photo and he identified Marla, and then Alina Haba said, no, 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 it's Eugene Carroll, and he realized the mistake he made, all of a sudden he said, oh, no, 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 it's a blurry photo. That photo's not blurry. It's a professionally done Getty images or photo like that. It's as clear as a bell. And that is the way the jury really saw that that is the way his mind works. Similarly, with Roger Ailes, when I interviewed him (laughs) uh, at Mar-a-Lago, he told me that he'd only become friends with Roger Ailes seven or eight years ago. The reason he told me that lie is because he was friends with Roger Ailes when Roger Ailes was E. Jean Carroll's boss in America's Talking, and he filmed a show at the New Jersey studio less than six months before this incident happened at Bergdorf. He, he just will lie about anything, anytime, in a way that he believes in that moment is the most convenient for him. And the jury saw that happen over and over and over again. Also, whether he'd ever shopped at Bergdorf. At first he said, rarely... Then he said, seldom. Then he said, never, never shopped at Bergdorf. And they could see the lies happening in real time. I think that was very, very powerful for the jury. And there's something, maybe this is what we're winnowing into, that he wasn't in the room. So that there was one actual live human being in the room in the form of Eugene, and he was just on film or, I guess, on Truth Social doing this kind of— What do you think, Diet? How do you think the case sort of went? If he had been in the courtroom, what, what's your opinion? You know, I, it, 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 I, I've been thinking about it a lot, and I think that it matters to him that he's only ever in spaces where he looks like a winner. Mm-hmm. And what both of you are describing today is that the adversarial system, if it's working as it is built to work, doesn't allow one person to just be the winner and that he doesn't allow himself in rooms where there's going to be real-time fact-checking, where people are going to question his credibility. He just doesn't tolerate it. And even if you get this kind of, you know, vanilla fact-checking that we got on the CNN Mm -hmm. town hall the next night, he goes crazy. I mean, he immediately goes on the attack. So I think for me... This is such a vindication of if you actually have a process, right, if you Mm. have a meaningful adversarial process, he will, A, run away because he can't function that way. He can only function in a reality show adversarial process where it's a It's got to be Celebrity Apprentice. Yeah. That's a brilliant. Right. In in that case, in that courtroom, Judge Kaplan was the boss, not Donald Trump, but Judge Kaplan, and he couldn't tolerate that. Right. I think you're right. Judge Kaplan, no relation to me, Robbie Kaplan. Yeah, important to keep saying. How do you think Robbie 
would have done questioning him. Well, we saw from the deposition. I mean, <laughs> right. I think from the deposition alone, I knew that what was going to happen happened, which is, you know, she prepared the hell out of it. Right. And I think that he is, I, I know you're resisting my sort of characterization, but he's a cartoon character. And so I just think, you know, he doesn't surprise you. <laughs> to the extent he surprises you, he surprises you with failure, you know, by being spectacularly bad. Right, with venom and failure. And so I just think, you know, I'm very much looking forward to Carol 789 to watch, <laughs> you know, but I, I think... We're maybe, not going to have to establish the falsity of those. Exactly. It's only a question of damages. Exactly. I'm going to ask one last question, and I, I think the way I want to ask it, and I'm going to quote from <laughs> my son in um, Lady Justice, offers this proposition that he hates... Me quoting because he says he sounded like a teenage nihilist. But he says, when he's talking about the Charlottesville Nazis, this is my younger son, he says the problem when the Nazis were marching in Charlottesville is if you engage with them, you lose. If you ignore them, you lose. And he posits in the book that there's no way out of this loop. You know, you could go fight them on the streets. They would win. You could hide in your basement. They were marching through your town. And it is very nihilist, by the way, for a 12-year-old to say that. But Robbie lived a Charlottesville trial where in some sense that was true again, right? You got in a situation where these guys were representing themselves and they were just spewing – Unbelievable racial hatred, unbelievable anti-Semitism. It was going out in the air, airwaves. They were podcasting. I mean, you, in some sense, were in that same loop where you were, by bringing them to justice, letting them be amplified. This didn't feel like that to me. But I wonder if it felt to you as though this is just giving Donald J. Trump and his hideous misogyny and his Relentless lying, yet another crack at doing it all again in a larger forum. Like, did it feel like that loop was performing this time? It it certainly didn't feel that way in that courtroom. It was very clear in that courtroom, again, who was the boss and what rules were being followed. And, you know, as we saw in the verdict, it was very clear what side the jury believed. But I guess there's some truth to it in the sense that he's not going to stop. He's still going to repeat the lies. And there are still people... Who believe it? In fact, Eugene, I think you've gotten some very nasty responses since CNN, right? You would not believe the storm of hatred and vitriol aimed at Robbie me. You know, it is disgusting and it's violent and it's not a good thing. But you'd do it again. Oh, yes. Because... He doesn't win both ways. He just... No, he didn't win. We won. He lost. We won. We won. Yeah. And he doesn't... Even though he says he won. That's... Yeah, they came up with that whole rape thing was their immediate reaction because they had to say something. Yeah, that gets my goat. Yeah. Yeah. We won. He lost. I'm going to ask you a version of the question Virginia and I asked you all those years ago. You had the best lawyer in the world, the best team in the world. You are braver than anybody I know. What do you tell folks who don't have the resources, the team? I mean, these people are writing to you now, and they're just, you know, we can't hatch, you know, underground Robbie Kaplan. So no. what are we What are we telling people 
who want to take the lesson of this trial and apply it to their lives, but really feel as though this is a victory that is available only to the very, very privileged and the lucky in this country. Well, it's not. It's it's available for every woman. If every woman tells her story, every woman listening to it may step up and tell her story. If we all just start saying what happened, we will have made a huge step forward. The thing why men have been getting away with how this cultural sexual violence is allowed to go on and on, because the victims are silent. They're ashamed. They don't want to speak. If we each of us starts just speaking up and telling the story, it'll be stopped. Men have never been able to deal with women who yak, yak, yak. And I think that's a great, great weapon. If every woman in America right now just said, what really happened to her in grade school, high school, walking down the street in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, everything would change. So that's what we're doing. And that's how we won. It's already changed. That's exactly right? it, I don't know if we, we could have won this trial five, ten years ago. I'm not sure no we could have. No way. I wouldn't have come forward ten years ago. You know, Weinstein had to happen. It was women standing up. Yeah. So it's not that we have to scale Robbie Kaplan. We have to scale Eugene. We That's have to scale correct. the voices. Scale the voices. We scale the voices, the whole world changes. That's it. That's it. It's, it's really quite simple. Eugene Carroll and Robbie Kaplan, this has been one of the great pleasures of my life. Thank you both for being here. And I just look forward to sitting back and watching wherever it is <laughs> you take us next on this journey. Thank you. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so very much for listening in. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com, or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio at Slate, and Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. We will be back with another amicus next week as we begin to hit the ground running for weekly episodes that will take us through June as we all suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous doctrine. Until then, take good care.